The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. We begin this morning. Look at verses 17 through 26 of Luke's Gospel, chapter, chapter 6. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Luke records, And he, that's Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did also to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hear in this text your words, words that came from your lips as you stood before a large crowd on a hillside near the Sea of Galilee. And what is perhaps the most sermon, most famous sermon ever preached. Lord, we are wholly inadequate to both fully understand what it is that you have communicated here and even more inadequate to live up to it in our own lives. And so we are keenly aware this morning that we need the help of your Holy Spirit in both regards. Both that by our intellect we would comprehend the breadth and the scope and the depth of what it is that you're saying to us here, and also a movement of our heart and our will to receive it, to believe it, to act on it, to live in it. So you do your work in us this morning. Help me, Lord, to be clear to the best of my understanding in teaching this this morning. Because at the end of the day, Lord, we are among those who want to be, at the end of our lives, called blessed. We want to be 
citizens of your kingdom. We want to be recipients of your blessing. But to do those things and to receive them, Lord, we have to believe a message that goes against everything we hear in our world today. That we're inundated with each and every moment of every day through every means of communication around us. And we have to embrace something that goes against the grain of all of that. It does not come natural, and we need your help. And we pray for that this morning, for Christ's sake and for his glory alone. Amen. You and I are inundated all day, every day, with with communication from the culture around us. We see things, we hear things. We see them through the media, through radio, through television, through images, through sounds. We're taught things uh, in school as we grow up. We, We learn things from interactions with other people. There are messages that we receive all throughout our lives that we just sort of receive and accept because we're sort of in the soup in which we get these messages and sometimes we don't think critically about them and sometimes we do. But I want to ask you a question this morning. If you were to listen to all the messages that you hear coming from our culture about what it is that brings happiness and satisfaction and blessing and lasting joy to a person, what would those things be? What are the things that the broader culture in which you and I live, what are the things that the culture says that if you can pursue and you can acquire these things, they'll bring you happiness and they'll bring you joy and they'll bring you satisfaction? What are those things? Well, you're not going to scream them out loud this morning. So I'll give you a list of things that came immediately to my mind. The most prominent of which is certainly prosperity and wealth, isn't it? Isn't that like the, the, the prevailing message of our culture? If you really want to be help, if you really want to be happy, if you really want to be satisfied, if you really want your troubles to fade away and to be able to enjoy your life, what you really need is more money. You need more wealth. If you can just get a certain amount of money and accumulated in your bank account, then your, your troubles will go away and you'll find happiness and you'll find joy and you'll find satisfaction. We think if I could just accumulate a little more money, all of my problems will disappear. I won't have to worry about bills, and I won't have to worry about retirement, and I won't have to worry about paying for college, and I won't have to worry about what's going to happen if, if the, the president destroys the economy and the stock market crashes. I won't have to worry about those kind of things if I can just accumulate enough wealth and enough resources of my own. Despite story after story throughout history of rich people who are miserable, we still tend to hear that message, and it still tends to gain traction in the culture around us, and sometimes it gains traction in our own hearts. I ran across an article that captured my attention when thinking about this week. It was a Time Magazine article from a number of years ago, and the title of the article was simply this, Here's How Winning the Lottery Makes You Miserable. Well, that got my attention and thinking about wealth and prosperity and the promise of happiness that comes from it. So I read the article, and I found some pretty amazing things that Time Magazine reported in this particular article. They, they said this right at the outset. They said a study done by the National Endowment of Financial Education discovered this, that about 70% of people, I get this, about 70% of people who gain a sudden windfall of cash, right, lose it within just a few years. 
About 70% of people who get a, a massive windfall or an unexpected windfall of money and wealth that they hadn't planned on end up losing it within just a few years. Don McNay, who is a financial consultant to people who win the lottery, said this. He said, quote, so many of them wind up unhappy or wind up broke. People have had terrible things happen. People commit suicide. People run through their money. Easy come, easy goes. They go through divorce or people die. In the article, he told the story of a man by the name of Jack Whitaker. Jack Whitaker was a 55-year-old man from West Virginia. He owned his own construction company. He was the president of the company. And before he won the Powerball lottery, he was already uh, a millionaire in his own right. But he won the, the Powerball uh, jackpot, $315 million. He got the right numbers. Or a computer generated the right numbers for him, I'm not sure. $315 million. And you would think that, man, if the message of prosperity and wealth bringing happiness and joy and satisfaction were true, you would think Jack Whitaker would have become the happiest, most satisfied and joyful man on the planet. Well, the exact opposite is true. Within four years, he was completely broke. And in those four years, he lost a daughter. He lost a granddaughter, both to drug overdoses which he blamed on the curse of the money that he got in the Powerball lottery. He said this, quote, My granddaughter is dead because of the money. You know, my wife had said that she had wished that we had just torn up the ticket. Well, I wish we had torn up the ticket too. What a powerful statement from somebody who just won $315 million. His conclusion at the end of the day was, I wish I would have torn up that ticket. That wasn't all the troubles. That was just a sampling of the troubles that the wealth brought him. He was also robbed in his car, while sitting in his car, outside of a strip joint, $545,000 that he had on him for some reason. The conclusion of it all, he looked at himself in the mirror, and here's what he said. He said, I just don't like Jack Whitaker. I don't like the hard heart I've got. I don't like what I've become. Remarkable, isn't it? And yet the message that's prevailing around us is that money brings you satisfaction and that wealth will bring you joy. And if you can just accumulate a little more and if you can just get a little more, if you can just build up your bank account and your retirement and your IRA, your troubles will sail away into the sunset. Despite the story of many Jack Whitakers, that message still gains traction. Much of our lives is spent pursuing and accumulating more wealth. And for many, even many people who identify themselves as Christians and with the body of Christ, still the pursuit of wealth drives much of their time and energy and passions. I can't help but believe that in some ways we still fall prey to the lie that that's where joy comes from and that's where happiness comes from just more money and more prosperity I think another message the culture sends is that it's just fulfilled desires if it's not money that brings us happiness it's just having your desires fulfilled the, the problem that you have in your life the culture says is that you just you want things and you, you can't get it there are people and there are processes and there are belief systems that are standing in your way if you could just have your desires fulfilled and get the things that you want 
you'll be happy and you'll be satisfied and you'll find an unending sort of a joy. And if you look at yourself in the mirror and you find yourself unhappy, then the reason must be that you have desires within you that are unfulfilled. And so the, the way you, you deal with that is if you're unhappy with your job, then you just go find another job and it'll make you happy. And if you're unhappy with your spouse, then you, you, you ditch that dude and you go find you another guy. Somebody else will fulfill your desires. If you're unhappy with who God's made you to be, you, you, your gender and your sex in which you were created, you want to be something else, you desire to be something else, and you just really want to get everybody else to, around you to pretend that you are something that you really are not, to call you by the pronoun of your choice or to let you go into whatever restroom you want to go in or play on whatever sports team you want to go on. No matter if it defies science, no matter if it defies logic, no matter if it defies common sense, if it's your desire and it's what you want and it's what's going to make you happy, who in the world is anybody to stand in your way of getting what will meet your desires? And the message behind it all is if I can just get these unfulfilled desires in my life, these things that I want that I don't have fulfilled, then I'll be happy and I'll finally be satisfied. And I'll finally find some sort of a joy in my life. If it's not prosperity, if it's not fulfilled desires that make us happy, maybe it's pleasure. Our world sends us that message too, that really if you just want to be happy, if you want to be fulfilled, if you want to be satisfied, then just pursue pleasure. Parties, vacations, drugs, sexual experiences, whatever it is that, that brings you pleasure, that makes you happy in the moment, just go after as much of that as you can acquire and you'll find happiness. Jim Pitts and I did a uh, funeral service this week for a 20, I was actually last weekend, last Sunday for a 29-year-old man, young man who had killed himself in the pursuit of pleasure through drugs. We watched as a family grieved and wept as the pursuit of pleasure did not bring that man or that family joy or happiness or satisfaction. It brought them death and pain and grief. Well, if it's not that, it's what about popularity? The world around us says that, right? If you could just be popular, if you can gain the admiration of the people around you and you can get some notoriety for yourself and have people look up to you and tell you that you're somebody and that you're something and that you're important, then you can be happy and then you can be fulfilled and satisfied. And so we idolize athletes and we idolize actors and actresses who we look to to give us opinions on everything that they know nothing about. That's a pet peeve of mine, by the way. Why does anybody care what an actor or an actress thinks about anything? Have you ever noticed that? They comment on everything in the news, and the news reports They're like, who cares? Why do I care what an actress thinks about politics, or about finances, or about taxes, or about anything else? I don't, I don't understand that. But it's because they're popular, right? They're popular. People think they're important because they're popular, and they think they're important because everybody else tells them they're important because they're popular. And so we idolize them. We idolize political, figure, political figures that are popular. And we secretly believe that if we could just gain the world's admiration, we also would be happy. And social media has played a huge role in this, right? We, we, we've got a whole generation of people that think that joy and satisfaction and happiness and contentment is built on how many likes you can generate or how many followers you can get to subscribe to you. People do all sorts of crazy things to generate likes and followers. 
If I can just get people to admire me, to love me, to follow me, to like me, I'll be happy. Well, that's what the world tell us, tells us. And, and none of those things by just uh, off to the side are novel to our culture. They're the same kind of things that men and women have pursued and the same messages that have flowed through culture after culture, year after year, many ages, many people, the same messages, the same common satanic strategy. So it's not going to surprise us when we turn to God's word, then we see that the key to true happiness, at least according to God, is actually none of those things. That none of those things will bring any of the happiness that we so desperately want. This sermon that Jesus delivers that we're going to begin to look at this morning, in fact, takes all of those values and all of those pursuits and turns them completely on their head. And he explains to us where true and eternal happiness comes from, where true blessedness is found. It's found in not living for any of those things that are a part of this world, but rather for living for his kingdom and being a part of his kingdom. This world is filled with empty promises and empty pursuits, all of which cannot deliver, all of which take you ultimately where, if you pursue them to the end, where that young man that we buried last week ended up, to a grave. But God's kingdom is eternal, and his kingdom brings eternal satisfaction, eternal pleasure, and eternal reward. And so the real question that really rises to the, to the surface of all this, then, is how does one enter his kingdom? And the answer is going to be shocking. How do we enter his kingdom? He's going to tell us we enter it through poverty, and through hunger, and through brokenness, and through persecution. Or put it another way, what kind of person can enter into his kingdom? He's going to tell us real clearly the kind of person that enters his kingdom, the kind of person that finds true happiness and satisfaction and lasting joy. What kind of person is that? They're the poor. They're the hungry. They're the broken. They're the hated and the persecuted. It's a bombshell message in our day just as much as it was in the day that Jesus delivered it to begin with because everything that he teaches in this lesson in this sermon is completely countercultural to the world around us. And it's only by the power of the Spirit of God that we can understand it and certainly embrace it. Now, before we get into the text, there's a couple questions we need to answer, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. I do want to raise it to your attention, though, so you can pursue it on your own. Uh, as you begin to study this message, which comes out of a broader sermon that's referred to commonly as the Sermon on the Mount, or in Luke's case, the Sermon on the Plain, some people call it. The question that arises then, is this what we're reading in Luke chapter 6, the same, the same message sermon that we read in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is called the Sermon on the Mount? Um, and there's tremendous theological debate about this issue. Um, is, is what we're reading in Luke, what Luke is recording, the same event, the same sermon, the same message, and he's just giving us a shortened version of it? Or is Luke recording for us a different sermon on a different day that has some similarities to the one that Matthew uh, records in Matthew 5 through 7? There are those who argue uh, for the latter, that this is a different sermon on a different day and not the Sermon on the Mount that Luke is recording. And they'll point to differences between what Luke records and what Matthew records. And they'll point to that as evidence. And they'll point to the description of the location where it seems in Matthew that, we, that they're going up on the, the hillside uh, to, to deliver the Sermon on the Mount. Whereas in Luke, it appears that they're coming down to a plain. And so those things are hard to reconcile. And so some will argue this is two different occasions, different sermons, different audiences similar concepts at least. 
I don't buy that. I believe it's the same sermon, and I believe it's the same event. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time justifying that. I'm just going to tell you that there's controversy about it. You can go down that rabbit hole on your own, Uh, but I'm convinced it's the same sermon, the same event, the same message that, that Luke has recorded for us just in an abbreviated way. Now, clearly, Jesus preached these same themes over and over again. He didn't just deliver the sermon once and never talk about these issues again. These themes were, were common in his preaching and common in his teaching, I'm sure, in other places, in other contexts, at other times. And in both cases, both Luke and Matthew are summarizing, no doubt, a larger sermon that Jesus delivered in that particular place on that particular day. Uh, Luke only gives us a little bit of it. Uh, in fact, uh, Matthew records about 107 verses of, of his, you know, of, of the content of this sermon, whereas uh, uh, Really about uh, 29 of those are found here in Luke's version of it. 34 of those verses that, that Matthew records as a whole are found in other places in Luke's gospel, sort of scattered about. And 47 verses don't have any parallel in Luke's version at all. Um, but in either case, they're both summarizing a larger message. Even if you were to go to Matthew's gospel and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's going to take you about 10 minutes if you read at a relatively average speed. Uh, 10 minutes. And no doubt the message Jesus actually delivered on that day was much lengthier than 10 minutes. And so even Matthew, though he records a lengthy portion of it, is summarizing a broader message that Jesus delivered in much more detail. Luke is summarizing it uh, and abbreviating it even more for the audience to whom he's particularly writing. Luke gives us this immediately following Jesus' call of his disciples. We looked at this last week, his appointing 12 to become apostles. And, and so uh, I think that that's strategic on his part. Uh, he doesn't tell us in, in right at the beginning of this exactly what, what day it is. or uh, He doesn't give us a good time reference. He, he just simply says, and he came down with them and stood on a level place. So we don't know if that was immediately or if that was a few days later. But regardless, Luke seems to put it in in clear proximity. And so William Barclay says this. He says, for for that reason, one great scholar calls the Sermon on the Mount, quote, the ordination address to the Twelve. Just as a young minister uh, has his tasks set out before him when he's called to his first charge, so the Twelve received from Jesus their ordination address before they went out to their task. So maybe he's right. Maybe that's what part of the purpose of this message is, is a sort of an ordination message and a commissioning message, if you will, to the newly appointed 12 apostles. But it certainly was aimed at the broader crowd as well. So I think we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount here, so it's the same message. So we're going to look to Matthew's record of this to enlighten our understanding a bit of what Luke is communicating. Now, another question we want to know is who's present for the sermon. And we see that in verses 17 and 18. There's essentially three groups that are present here. He simply tells us in verse 17, and he, Jesus, came down with them. That's the 12 apostles. So they're there with him. Wherever they've been, up on a mountain, they've come down, and he's, they're still with him. And then he tells us there's also a great crowd of his disciples. The word disciple here is just the, the, the word follower. So when they come down, there's the 12, and there's Jesus, and then there's a great crowd there of, of other followers, other disciples in a generic sort of a sense. A, a great crowd of people who have now accumulated who are following Jesus wherever he goes and they're listening to his message and they're watching his miracles and to some degree or the other they're, they're interested in what he's saying and what he's doing and so they're continuing to follow him at various degrees of, of belief at various degrees of interest at various degrees of commitment it's a, it's a mixed bag of followers if you will some of them are true believers we'll find out in the end many, maybe even most 
likely most of them are not. In John chapter 6, verse 66, after Jesus has delivered some particularly difficult to embrace teaching, John records this. He says, after this, many of his disciples, he's not talking about the 12, he's talking about that larger group, they did what? Well, they turned back and they, they no longer walked with him. So a lot of the people in this crowd are, are interested, but they're not committed. There's something that's drawing them to Jesus, but they're not fully embracing him as Lord and Savior. And when things get hard and when things get difficult to embrace, they simply turn away and they walk away. They walk away from him altogether. But that crowd is there, and it seems that it's to that crowd that this message is particularly uh, aimed. But he tells us also that, that but beyond the, the, the 12 disciples, but beyond this group of disciples that are with him, there's a, a, a large crowd, a, a large crowd that's from all over the region. So word is spread about his healing, word is spread about his teaching, and people are coming from all over the region just out of curiosity and out of interest. And so there's a large crowd of people who are not his 12 apostles who are not at this point disciples or followers of Jesus. They're, they're just people who are curious or curiosity seekers and they're coming for lots of different reasons. Some of them are coming because they're sick and, or they're demon possessed or they have a problem and they've heard that he can heal and so they're just simply coming to see if they can get their affliction dealt with. But those are the groups that are there. It's a large, large group that's gathered. There are three sort of subgroups. And the message that he delivers is, is, it begins with what are sometimes called beatitudes. The word, maybe you've heard that phrase, the beatitudes. Uh, it simply it gets that name from the first word, blessed, in Latin. Uh, translates over toward beatitude, and so it sort of captures that, uh, that name. It's, it's sort of been coined to, to describe these first few things that Jesus says here, at least recorded by Luke and Matthew. But he gives in Luke's account four blessings and four woes. Four blessings followed by four related woes. And so we have to answer the question, what does it mean to be blessed and what does it mean to be woe or woed? I don't know if that's a word. I just made it up and it sounds good. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, we need to answer that question because he's going to say to us, blessed are those who are this, blessed are those who are this. And he's going to say, woe to those who are other things. So what does it mean to be blessed? Well, it's... It, our English word blessed doesn't really capture it the way we use it. Some translations will use the word happy, but that really doesn't get it either because happiness, at least in English, is a word that sort of it, it rises or falls based on our circumstances typically. I'm happy because things are going well, but when things aren't going well, then I'm unhappy. And that's not the word that is being utilized here. That's not the, the, the meaning, at least, of this word blessed. The word blessed here is not something, it's not a word that conveys a feeling or an emotion or a state of being that fluctuates based on circumstances. It's a, it's a settled sort of a joy that is untouchable or unchangeable by the circumstances around us. It's, it's completely independent of the, the changes and the, the chances of life. It's a, a sustaining happiness and joy that's settled in the heart that endures through every circumstance that flows really out of a right relationship with God. So when you hear Jesus say, blessed is the person who, that's what he's talking about. He, the, the, the person that he's talking about is a person who is not just happy when things are good, but they have a sustaining joy, a sustaining happiness that, that, that rides through the, the winds of life, that, that, that doesn't fluctuate when things are good or bad, that sustains them through all of life's circumstances, and it flows directly out of a right relationship with God. And as we're going to see, it has both a, a, a present 
sort of orientation and a future orientation. It's a joy that's anchored in the present, but it's also a joy that's fully consummated in the future. It's that kind of a blessing. William Barclay, again, he says this, the blessedness which belongs to the Christian is not a blessedness which is postponed to some future world of glory. It's a blessedness which exists here and now. It's not something into which the Christian will enter. It's something into which he has entered. So there's this present ramification of this blessedness. There is also a future full consummation of it, and we'll talk to that a little bit later. But when you see the word blessed, just think the, the settled joy and the favored position that comes from a right relationship with God. So think of that. Settled joy, settled joy, and a favored position that comes from a right relationship with God. Well, if that's what blessing is, well, what's woe? Well, woe, it's like, whoa. It's like, whoa. You understand the difference, right? Woe is the opposite of blessed. Woe is the opposite of that. If being blessed is a settled joy and a favored position that comes out of a right relationship with God, then being in a, in a state of woe is being in the state of the worst, most unfavorable position that comes from a wrong relationship to God. It's being under condemnation because of a wrong relationship from God. It's the person who has riding on their shoulders calamity and disaster and damnation. And when Jesus uses these words in this sermon, blessed and woe, these are not just sort of wishful descriptives. They're declarations about the state of the soul. They're divine judgments, if you will, in the present that have future ramifications. The person who's blessed is not the person who's just happy. They're the person who stands in a right relationship with their creator and who are destined for an eternity of joy and satisfaction in his kingdom. Those upon whom woe is declared here are those who are in wrong relationship to their creator, who are outside of his kingdom, who are destined for an eternal damnation in a place called hell. So what Jesus is talking about here is the eternity of the soul. That's what he's talking about. And every human being falls into one category or the other, either blessed or in a condition of woe. We'll just look this morning, with our time left, at the first of these statements that he makes beginning in verse 20 and then the, the corresponding woe in verse 24. Here's what he says. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then down in verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. That word consolation is not a word we use very often. Think in terms of comfort or think in terms of reward. Blessed are you who are poor, but woe to you who are rich. The word poor here is a word that has a lot of different meanings in our culture. You hear poor, that can mean a lot of different things. The, the Greek word used here is a word that describes someone who is utterly poverty-stricken. It's the person who finds himself in abject poverty. It's the, it's the beggar on the street who has absolutely no means of support, who's completely and totally dependent on other people literally to survive. So the person who's blessed here is the person who is in abject poverty. 
It's the person who has no means in and of themselves to sustain themselves. It is the person who is poverty-stricken, who's a beggar, who has no means to make things work for themselves. And the contrast is between that person and the rich person. The poor person, we're told, is blessed, and theirs is the kingdom of God. The rich person, we're told, has woe upon him, and that's a person who's already received whatever consolation and comfort they're going to have. There's nothing coming, coming down the line that's going to be for them that's good. And so we have to ask the question immediately when we hear the terms poor and rich, what is he talking about? Is he talking about material wealth is here? here? Is he talking about people who are materially rich versus people who are materially poor? Is he talking about just stuff and money and possessions and things? Is there some inherent godliness and blessing to being poverty-stricken versus having things? Is there some inherent ungodliness in having money and having a home and having a vehicle and having clothes to wear and having plenty of food? Is poverty inherently godly? Is wealth inherently ungodly? Well, the answer to that question is, of course, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about material wealth. We have a whole wealth of teaching in scriptures that, that makes that quite clear. In fact, uh, there are some very wealthy people throughout the, the pages of Scripture who the Bible says are very clearly blessed by God and godly people. We think in terms of Abraham. We think of Job. We can think of King David. We can think of other people. Even in the New Testament, people like, ultimately, uh, uh, people like um, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and some others. People who are wealthy and yet blessed. So it can't be just about material wealth, can it? The Bible has a lot to say about money and wealth, don't get me wrong. It has a lot to say about that. It has a lot to say about it. It t- tells us a lot of things about money and wealth. It tells us that money and wealth can bring to us particular spiritual challenges, that the more we have of it, it does bring some unique challenges spiritually that come into our world. It tells us that money and wealth, material-wise at least, can make it difficult for people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Those things can become an impediment to being a part of the kingdom of God. Matthew 19, verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples these words, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. We won't spend a lot of time there, but suffice it to say on a very simple, clear reading of the text, what Jesus is saying is material wealth and riches makes it difficult for a person to receive the gospel and to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult for rich people to be people who are rich in wealth to be poor in spirit is another way of saying that. It's not impossible, it's just hard. You say, well, why is it hard? Because people who are, who are rich with material things are tempted to trust in the material things rather than to trust into God. Proverbs 11.28 says that. Proverbs 11.28 says, whoever trusts in his riches will what? They'll fall. But the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. There's a particular temptation that comes with material wealth and possessions. And that temptation is that we'll trust in those things, that we'll find our security and our hope in those things rather than in God. They, they compete. They compete with God for our allegiance. We're tempted to trust in them. They also compete with God for our affection. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, very familiar New Testament passage. Paul writes to Timothy and he says this, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The money itself isn't evil. It's the, it's the love or the affection for that money and that wealth that, that rots the soul. We're tempted to love our money more than we love God. We're tempted to, to, to have a desire for our money and to pursue our money with all of our hearts more than pursuing God with all of our hearts. And our affections get attached to our stuff and our love for God grows cold. And so when our love for God and our affection for God is eclipsed by our love for money, well, Paul says what happens, we wander away from the faith. So uh, spiritual challenges come into the life of those who have material wealth and material possessions. Those spiritual challenges can be impediments to entering the kingdom of God. They make it at the very least difficult for rich people to get into the kingdom. The Bible at least tells us that. The Bible tells us an awful lot about how we're to handle our money as well. It tells us we're to invest it in the kingdom of God. That material wealth can be used as an investment in God's kingdom, and that's a legitimate and good spiritual use for it. We'll see when we get to Luke chapter 12, Jesus is going to tell us a parable about a man who has a lot of wealth. His wealth is not in, um, in an IRA or in cash or in his bank account, but it's in his crops because he's a farmer, and God has given him, blessed him with a bumper crop this particular year, and he's filled up his entire barn with all of his crop, and the, he's got a huge problem on his hand. The huge problem is the crop is too big and his barn is too small. And he finds himself going, now what am I going to do with all of, my, all of my stuff here, all of my crop? I don't know what to do. My barn is full. I, I, I don't have anywhere to put it. And so he thinks to himself, self, what are you going to do? And he said, oh, I got it. I got a great idea. I'll build bigger barns. And then I can store more stuff. In verse 20 of chapter 12, God says to this man, you fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up for himself and is not rich toward God. It's not that the, the wealth is horrible. It's that this man was hoarding his wealth, living selfishly. And he was not rich toward God. He was rich toward himself and not rich toward God. There's a way to have wealth and to be rich toward God at the same time, to invest in his kingdom and the work of his ministry around the world. The, word, the Bible also tells us that, that, that when we have wealth and material things, that, that they can be used as an expression of, of godly generosity. We can be generous with it. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and following, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. In other words, if you're rich, here's what you need to know. Don't be, don't be proud, don't be arrogant, don't be boastful in your wealth. And don't set your hopes on the riches, but set it on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Here to do good, to be, good, be, be rich in good works, and to be what? To be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So this principle that, that God has blessed you with an abundance of wealth, that you can actually use that wealth in being generous, that in giving it away and sharing it with other people, you're actually storing up for yourself a different kind of a wealth, an eternal wealth, and the bank account that resides in heaven. It's using good, using your wealth to do good, to help others. The scriptures never portray money and wealth as a measure of godliness or ungodliness either way. 
They just warn us that it makes it difficult for, for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven, and it gives us an awful lot of uh, sort of truths to, to fence in how we're to use wealth if we should be blessed to have it. But it is no indication of whether someone's godly or ungodly. So that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about material wealth. So what kind of poor and rich is he talking about here? Well, Matthew chapter 5 captures it for us. In Matthew's account of the message, he says this, that Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that's what we're talking about, the poor in spirit, not the poor in money. The poor in spirit, what does that mean? Well, there's a whole Old Testament backdrop to this, this picture of a poor man, a person who's poor in spirit. You can go to the Psalms, we can go a lot of places, but for time's sake, we'll just look at a couple Psalms this morning. Psalm 34, 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his trouble. It's a poor man who's desperate, cries out to the Lord and is saved. Psalm 72, 12, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. The Lord, the Lord comes to the one and delivers the one who's poor and doesn't have anyone else to help him. Psalm 113, verse 7, he raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and the princes of his people. It's the poor man. Who's the poor man in the Psalms? As you take a composite of what they tell us, the poor man is the humble man. He's the, the humble man who has very little, but who puts all of his hope and his trust in God, who he sees as his only hope. He's the humble man who doesn't have very much, who looks to God as his only source of hope. That's the poor man in the Old Testament. So who are the poor in spirit, if we were to sort of put that all together? Well, the poor in spirit is the person who looks at themselves in the mirror and recognizes their own total helplessness as far as spiritual things go and has put their whole trust in God. It's the person who looks at themselves in the mirror and when they evaluate their own spirituality, they look at themselves and they say, you know what, I am utterly spiritually destitute. I may do some good things here and there. I may go to church. I may read my Bible. I may pray. I may help people on occasion. I may do good things. But at the end of the day, none of that has really any value, at least in the case of earning me any favor with God. Because at the end of the day, what I really am spiritually is a beggar who's destitute, whose only hope is to look to God and put my trust in him and hope and pray and trust that he'll deliver me by his grace and not on my merit. That's the person who's the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to, to see ourselves as we truly are spiritually, to see ourselves as lost and desperate and hopeless beggars, completely unable to earn God's favor, completely dependent upon God to save us. It's to realize that apart from Jesus Christ and his work on the cross on our behalf, we are spiritually destitute and eternally doomed. That we have no hope. Regardless of our wealth, regardless of our education, regardless of our popularity, regardless of our accomplishments, regardless of how much Bible we know, regardless of our good behavior, regardless of how many ritual, uh, religious rituals we've undergone, all of that added up into a big pile ultimately amounts to nothing as far as meriting our salvation. Nothing. A.W. Pink says this, poor in spirit, it is the opposite of the haughty, 
the self-assertive, the self-sufficient disposition in which the, the world so much admires and praises. It's the very reverse of that independent and defiant attitude which refuses to bow to God, which determines to brave things out. It is to realize that I have nothing. I am nothing, and I can do nothing, and I have need of all things. That's what it means to be poor of spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, it's just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It's the opposite of our American can-do attitude. It's the opposite of the, 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 the philosophy that says you can be all that you can be. It's, it's the opposite of self-reliance and self-motivation. It's the opposite of, of an attitude that says, no, I can pull myself up by the bootstraps and I can do better and do good things and, and please God by, by just going out there and, and doing better. It's the opposite of earning my own way. When we get to Luke chapter 18, we'll see Jesus giving a parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. A Pharisee who thought himself to be very spiritual, to be rich spiritually. That's what he thought of himself. He pranced around in front of everybody, prayed out loud, and extolled the value and the virtues of his spirituality. He tells everybody in his prayer about all of his good religious works, how good of a person, how moral of a person he is. He tells everybody through his prayer how religious of a person he is. And he is a religious person. And at least by the standards of the religion of his day, he is a moral person, at least outwardly. And in contrast, Jesus paints the picture of a, a tax collector, a scum scoundrel who's at the very back of the room who looks up to God and all he has to say is, have mercy on me, God. Have mercy on me, the sinner. One man looks at himself and fancies himself spiritually rich, rich in spirit because of all of his religious works and because of all his moral behavior. And one man looks at himself and says, I'm destitute, I'm a beggar. I have absolutely nothing to, to display before God to earn any credit with him. My only hope is that God would have mercy on me. That's it. And Jesus says something devastating at the end of that. He says, it's this man, the, the, the tax collector that walks away justified and not the other. The one thought he was rich, but he was actually poor. And the other man was poor, but what he didn't know is he became rich. Those who are poor in spirit are blessed, and theirs is the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus says. Those who look at themselves in the mirror and realize that spiritually they're destitute and hopeless and their good works amount to nothing and they can never earn God's favor and they can't ever be good enough, they can't ever do enough good things, they can't ever go to church enough, they can't ever read their Bible enough, they can't ever become moral enough, they can't ever evangelize enough, they can't ever go to enough Bible studies, they can't ever do enough things in their life to ever earn God's favor. It's the person who realizes that and admits that and sees himself in light of the glory of God and says, I'm nobody, I'm nothing. My only hope is that God would be merciful to me and save me in spite of who I am, not because of who I am. It's that person that's poor in spirit. And it's that person to whom it said theirs is the kingdom of God. It's the poor in spirit who, who gains entrance into the kingdom of God. It's the poor in spirit who, like the tax collector, goes away justified. And they enjoy all the blessings and the benefits that come 
immediately from being a part of the kingdom of God and all the blessings and benefits that come with the eternal kingdom beyond this life. It's the poor in spirit. Then he says, woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are rich. Who's he talking about? He's talking about people like that Pharisee. People who look at themselves and spiritually think they're, they're something. Think that, hey, you know, God's, God's pretty impressed with me. Look at how good of a person I am. Look at all these godly things that I do. They compare themselves to other people and they say, man, look at, look at, look at David over there. I'm way beyond that guy. I mean, he's a pretty good Christian, but I'm better. I saw him do something bad once. I would never do that. It's a person who looks at all of their morality and compared to the world around them and around other people and just begins to think, you know what? I think God's pretty pleased with me. It's the person who looks at their religious activity and says, you know what? Look at all these things I do. I go to church. I, I, I tithe. I give my money. I, I go and I do and I do these things. Surely some of that is please the Lord. They think they're rich, but they're poor. It's like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. That's how they saw themselves. They kept the law, and so they thought that pleased God and earned them credit, made them spiritually rich, but it didn't. All it made them was damned. But Jesus says to this crowd, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, if you want eternal happiness and blessedness and a joy that sustains you through anything that the world throws at you and that life comes at you with, just be poor in spirit. That's where it begins. And you say, well, then how do I do that? How do I, how do I become poor in spirit? Well, let me just say this. That's a great question. I'm glad you've asked that. And you did ask that, right? How do I become poor in spirit? Is that what you're wondering right now? I want to be that. I want to be the one that's blessed. I don't want to be the one that's woed. How do I become poor in spirit? Well, the answer is, first of all, it requires a work of God in your heart for which you need to pray. A.W. Pink says it this way, by nature, we are well pleased with ourselves and we're mad enough to think that we deserve something good at the hands of God. Let men but conduct themselves decently in a civil way, keeping themselves from grosser sins and they are rich in spirit, pride filling their hearts, self-righteous, and nothing short of a miracle of grace can change the course of this stream. He's right. To come to terms with the reality that you're poor in spirit, it requires a work of God in your heart that opens your eyes to the true reality of who you are, that cuts through your spiritual pride and your arrogance, that cuts through your, your, your pseudo-morality and the pride you take in your religious activity and opens your eyes to the fact that in contrast to the glory of God and the righteousness of Jesus, you're a destitute beggar who has nothing to offer God. If you're proud this morning of your spiritual activity, pray that God would open your eyes to the truth. They show you who you really are spiritually before him. It requires that work of God in the heart. And the other thing you can do is stop trying. Stop trying to earn God's favor with your good works. Stop trying to earn God's favor with your religious rituals and look to the cross of Jesus where Christ has done everything for you. Where he only requires that you place your faith and trust in his payment for your debt 
and the redemption that he earned in your place and to receive from him all that you need to be saved. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. You want to be right with God? You want to be part of his kingdom? The answer is not to walk out of this room this morning with some sort of a resolution in your heart. You know, this week I'm just going to do better. This week I'm going to stop doing X, Y, Z, and I'm going to start doing X, Y, Z. That's not the right response. It's not to walk out of this room and say, I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps and just get better at this Christian thing. The right response is to say, God, break my heart and help me see the true poverty of my soul and help me see the glory of Jesus Christ and whom I have everything I need for life and godliness and eternal life. And trust in him and look to him and find everything you need in him the one who died for you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, the only way into your kingdom is to be poor in spirit, is to abandon any hope of earning our way through our morality or through our religious activity or through being better than the next guy. It's to abandon any, any way of looking at life and the world as though it's some huge scale where we just have to somehow accumulate more good works than bad we'll find our way in. It's to look at ourselves in the mirror in light of your glory and see that we are utterly spiritually destitute. We have nothing to commend ourselves before you. That we're beggars spiritually who need everything and we have no ability to get it on our own. But Lord Jesus, when we realize that, we look to your cross and we see that you, the perfectly righteous one, you lived a perfect life, accomplished what we could never accomplish, even if we were to try. And you willingly laid down your life on a Roman cross where you died to pay our debt of sin. You died, you were buried, and you were raised from the grave. And you stand before us this morning saying, my kingdom is open to any person will abandon every effort of self-salvation and look to me and place their trust and hope in me and what I've done for them. Lord, I pray that you would open eyes in this room this morning to those who are proud of their spiritual accomplishments, that you would crush that pride, that you would make us all the people who are the poor in spirit, and that we would cry out to you and find in you everything. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.